If you would take the Holy Scriptures and turn with me tonight to Matthew chapter 28 to a very familiar passage of Scripture. As you're turning, let me say a couple of things, if I may. I'm very honored and I'm humbled to be preaching to you tonight. I look out among you and I see you, many of whom are my colleagues and peers, and I think that you are more holy, you're more gifted, you're better able to do what I am attempting to do tonight. I thank the Lord for this association. I thank the Lord for every one of you, brethren. And I am just so pleased with what Christ has done for us and what he is yet to do for us, brethren. We are not of those who are the pessimistic nature. We believe that our Christ sits upon the throne of his Father, and he is there until all of his enemies, all of his enemies, brethren, are made his footstool. May we never fall into pessimism, and may we never fall into dark doubt, for the Lamb is upon his throne, and he has 144,000, and however you want to slice that, brethren, <laughs> there with him on Mount Zion. And so, thank you for this privilege. My wife said to me, I had the wonderful privilege of preaching last year. It was the last sermon. Dr. Malone called me, and he said, the GA planning committee wants you to preach this year. And I said, you know, I did last year. Get somebody else. And he said, well, they've talked about it, and they want you. And they, I said, what do you want me to preach on? And they said, the Great Commission. I said, that's what I did last year. <laughs> and he said, well, I can't remember what he said. I, go and <laughs> I said, I'll think about it, and so on. And I said, Debbie, they want me to preach again. She said, well, I said, I don't know. She said, maybe they think you're going to die. <laughs> and they... And they won't get to hear you. I said, thanks a lot, darling. You're really. I told, I said, I will preach one condition. That you let me go first instead of last, as last time. Because last year at the GA, I had to go and rewrite and rework my sermon five different times. before I, Because everybody was stealing my thunder. And I thought, first position, I'll be saved. And then a rascal whose name I will not call stole 50% of my thunder this morning. I'm not safe, whether first, middle, or last. The only safe place is to be in Christ, isn't it? Thank you, brethren, for this wonderful privilege of opening up the Word of God. Matthew 28, verse 16 a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. But may the Spirit of the living God enable us to look at it as if for the first time. Matthew 28, verse 16, hear now the word of the living God. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. They saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. And may the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word and give us ears to hear as Christ speaks to us this night. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we bow before Your glory, Your majesty, Your holiness, and all that You are. We adore You tonight, and we thank You for the promises of Your Holy Word that you have looked upon your Son and you have told him that in the great covenant of redemption, if he would come and die for sinners, that you would give him the 
heathen, the nations for his inheritance. We thank you that not only is he king now, but one day his dominion shall be made known. I pray that you will do unto us as you did the servant of Elisha. Open our eyes to cause us to see that there are more that be with us than with them. And may we go forth boldly in the glorious and mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord of the Scriptures tonight, You have given Your Word. Open it up to our minds and understandings and our hearts tonight. Do us good and stir us for the glory of Your Son, in whose worthy name I ask these things. Amen. In a world filled with empty religion, hostility, and antagonism, the Lord Christ, the risen Savior, assembles His apostles at Bethany in Galilee. He would speak to them His last words while here upon the earth. He would then ascend into the throne room of God, take His rightful place as the mediatorial Lord of heaven above, earth below, and hell beneath. And there wait until that great and notable day of Jehovah when the Father says, Today is the day, and He shall return in clouds of great glory. What were the last words He would say to these apostles before ascending? What was His people to do in that great in-between time? That in-between His ascension and His second advent, His second coming. What were they to do? He clearly instructs them. Did He tell them to dissolve and disband? You've got too many enemies around you. You're few in number. You cannot possibly succeed. No. Did He tell them to form a secret society and hope for the best? Try to make do, boys. i got to leave. But hang in there. Or did He tell them to hold on and cloister themselves in small little pockets here and there, until one day I come back for you? The answer to all of these questions is a resounding no, no, no. Instead, he tells them to go back into Jerusalem, and you briefly wait there until you are clothed and endued with power from on high. And when you are clothed and endued with power from on high, you go forth and you preach the Gospel. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that repentance and remission of sins is to be preached in His name among all the nations. Go and preach this Gospel and conquer the world. And brethren, I believe that is the intent of this message. I can remember when first coming to the doctrines of grace, I thought surely everybody would rejoice. Very few did. I can remember when I first went to Utah, I said, I'm not an Arminian. I'm not coming with this easy believism. I'm coming with the gospel. And I know I'm going to see the whole state of Utah converted. I labored there for two years and had yet seen one conversion. But I still believe the truth, brethren that the gospel is to go forth conquering. We do not live by sight. We live by faith in the promise of the Word of God. Go forth and conquer the world. And too many times I think we have this retreatist mentality. We have this cloistered concept. We are intimidated by the politicians and powerful people of this world when it should be we who are standing forth and saying, thus says the Lord. Whether they believe or whether they don't believe is not our responsibility, but it is our responsibility to proclaim. Coming to this great commission, I have prayed that the Lord would deliver us from this familiarity that breeds contempt. Most of us have verses 18 through 20 memorized. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know what these verses say. Tonight I pray that anew and afresh we will come to these verses and consider them in the light of the eleven apostles there as the Lord of glory ascends into heaven and He has left them 
these words. The first thing, there's seven things I'd have us to see tonight from this passage of Scripture. I'm going to move this because I know I'm going to knock it over if I don't. The first thing I want us to see in regard to this matter of the Great Commission and evangelism is the power that is indisputable. Verse 18, and he came and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me. Some translations have the word power, authority, ecosia is the same concept. It is an authority that is backed with power. He says, all authority is given to me. I would have you to see that this authority is absolute. Too many times we are governed by what we see, as I said earlier. We think Washington controls the scene, or London, or Moscow, or Saudi Arabia, or wherever. But we need to remember that Christ, prior to His ascension, said, Brethren, all authority has been given to me. Absolute authority. Authority in heaven and authority in earth. Men rule by Him. Our President George W. Bush is in the office because it is decreed and ordered by Christ. And whoever our next president may be will be the same. Heaven governs. And Jesus said, all authority. It is an absolute authority. There is no weak, emaciated, defeated Jesus here. This is one who is risen. This is one who has been endowed. As the mediatorial Lord, He would take His seat at the Father's right hand. Endowed with all authority. But the second thing I want you to see with regard to this authority, not only is it absolute, but it is delegated. And I think the implication is clear here. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Therefore, you go. He is not sending out these men and those who subsequently will follow Him by themselves, without any authority, without any power. This that has been delegated to Him, He now delegates unto His apostles, and on and on and on. It is a delegated authority. And so many times, I think in our preaching, and I think in our Christian evangelism and our witnessing, we are so timid. We're hesitant. I was moved a while back reading a sermon on Acts 1-8 by Spurgeon entitled Gospel Missions. And he says this. He says, I think the missionary, the evangelist, or witness should say, I am come to tell you something which the one God of heaven and earth has said. And I tell you before I announce it, that if you believe it, you shall be saved. If not, you shall be damned. I am come to tell you that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became flesh to die for poor, unworthy men, that through His mediation and death and suffering, the people of God might be delivered. Now, my brethren, He pauses and He speaks to these these people. He is speaking at the London Missionary Society. He says, now, my brethren, we have power. We are God's ministers. We preach God's truth. The great judge of heaven and earth has told us the truth. Let us stand out and say, we are the servants of the living God. We tell you what God has told us. And we warn you that if you reject our testimony, it shall be better for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. The same authority that was given to him of the Father, of heaven, authority over heaven and earth, has been delegated unto us. This is a power that is indisputable. No timidity. No hesitation. I remember one time in 1984... I was driving to the Banner of Truth Conference in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Stopped at a rest stop. Came out. Looked over there and here were a group of Muslims. And they had their mats out on the ground and they were bowing toward Mecca, saying their prayers. And I said, let's wait here a minute. And they came and we began to engage them in conversation. And one of them was talking, and he was explaining his view of Islam. And then he made this statement. He said, but after all, that's only my opinion. 
I said, then it really doesn't matter much, does it? Because everybody has an opinion, do they not? It doesn't matter what our opinions might be. It doesn't matter what we think or what we might feel. It matters what God has declared. And I was thankful that I was able to say to him that day, well, I want to tell you something. This is not my opinion, but this is what God, the Lord of heaven and earth, has said. That you need a Savior. You have sinned and transgressed His law. You have spurned His grace. You've rejected His Son. But mercy is offered to you. It is not in Allah. It is in Christ Jesus the Lord. That's not my opinion. This is the truth of the living God. Our opinions don't really matter that much. The older I get, the more I understand that. The second thing I would have us to see in this passage of Scripture are the participants that are involved. Notice verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples. No one is directly as such spoken to, or no one is brought out clearly in this passage. Go. This is an interesting word. It's a present active participle. It's not an imperative. Many times we translate it as an imperative as it is here. Go, therefore. But it's not an imperative. What he is saying basically is, as you are going, it is a foregone conclusion that they would be going. He's not saying, go, they were already in his mind going. It was a foregone conclusion. As you go. Now, who, to whom is he speaking? To whom was this commission given? Brother Bob addressed this matter this morning. And he is right. The answer, of course, is the apostles. These, this has led some to erroneously believe that since it was originally given to the apostles, the Great Commission has no effect upon the church today. Well, this is a blatant denial of Scripture. Don't even really want to address that. But I must ask the question, who were the apostles? They were men appointed by Christ Himself to lay the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. Handpicked. Now, lest we get carried away here, the apostles did not ordain other apostles to succeed themselves. Instead, they ordained them elders, plural, in every church, singular, Acts 14.23. The so-called doctrine of apostolic succession is not found in a continuous, unbroken line of men from the apostles' time to ours. But instead, the doctrine of apostolic succession is found only where the truth of the apostles is taught. This commission was given to the apostles, but the apostles laid the foundation of the church, and the church was to build upon this foundation. In other words, the apostles received the commission, and they passed it on to the church. The church, then, is the witness to the truths passed on by the apostles. Does that mean then that every church member should quit his or her vocation? One of the things that the Reformation did, I think, was reestablish this whole matter of vocation. Rome had this concept that unless you were a priest or a prelate, you were not as holy. The Reformation came and said, whether you're a preacher or whether you're a housewife or mother, if you're in the calling wherewith God has called you, it's holy. It's unto the Lord. Does that mean then because the church has given this commission that everyone, every member of every church should quit his or her vocation and should go to the mission field or give themselves over to full-time ministry or something of this nature? No. But I can say this, and I still believe this, as a confessional Reformed Baptist, I believe there's still some in our midst that need to go. There's some that need to lay down the tools of their trade and go, and the church will stand behind them. But on the other hand, there will be some who need to stay, and some who will need to, in the staying, pray and give, and not just give in a, a stingy fashion, but give generously and open-heartedly. 
And then, does this mean that the pastors and the elders are the only ones to evangelize? And that evangelism is done only in the house of God, in the collective worship of the people of God on the day of God? And I believe no, brethren. I believe that the implication of this means that every Christian collectively in the visible churches of Jesus Christ is responsible to see that the gospel is taken to the ends of the earth. Every Christian is to bear witness and evangelize in his neighborhood, in his work, in the marketplace, in the public forum. Evangelism is not done by specialists. The Southern Baptist Convention, of which I, our church is duly aligned, but in the Southern Baptist Convention they have an association of evangelists. These are the professionals that come in twice a year. Once in the spring and once in the fall. And for them, evangelism and revival is, is brought about by these specialists. The New Testament knows of no such speciality. Every Christian is to be the salt of the earth. Every Christian is to be lights in this world of darkness. Every Christian is to bear witness of this great and glorious Savior who in sovereign mercy and love came and called you out of darkness into His marvelous life. If you have this hope within you, then you need to be ready to give an answer at any moment of anyone who asks of you. The passage that our brother referred to this morning, Acts 8.4, is a verse that has moved me. I've wrestled with it. I've argued with it. I've fought with it. I've, I've submitted to it. Acts 8.4. And I think this is a Blackburnism. It's not inspired in case you didn't know. <clears throat> Acts 8.4. Therefore, those who were scattered or dispersed went everywhere preaching the Word. I believe that the commission had been given to the apostles the apostles were to lay the foundation and lead the church. When we come to Acts chapter 8, they're still huddled in Jerusalem. The universal church and the visible church were one and the same. And God brought persecution upon the church. He intended to get the message of His Son out to the world. The apostles remained in Jerusalem, but the brethren were dispersed. And what did they do? It tells us here that those who were dispersed went everywhere. The word preaching here is not the standard word that we would normally use preaching, Karuz. It is euangelizomai, or from euangeliza, to gospel, to evangelize the word. They're going forth. And they're giving the gospel. They're preaching. They've been driven out of their homes and out of their workplaces. Scattered by the persecution. But they're not silent. Too many times we're scattered and silent. But they were not. And so we see here, secondly, the participants that are involved in this commission. Third thing I would have us to see is a purpose that is inarguable. Verse 19 again. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. This is more implied here, but I, I encounter this. I encounter this so much in California. And believe it or not, I'm encountering it in the South again. There are many arguments against evangelizing and making disciples. People will tell you, you know, religion is a private matter. Well, I can tell you there's coming a day when it won't be a private matter. I don't believe that, they tell me. And I tell them, your unbelief doesn't change the reality of the truth. There's coming a day when everything private in your heart will be brought out and the Lord God, through His Son, Christ Jesus, will expose everything. Religion is a private matter, they say. Well, also, people say, well, you know, it's none of your business. 
And I tell them, you know, it just happens to be that it is my business. <laughs> and I think of this story. You Yankees know what I'm talking about here. Up in the Finger Lakes area of New York, where the rich and famous used to go, I read this account one time of, I forget the names of the families, the Vanderbilts or whomever, up there in the Finger Lakes area, and the husbands and wives were out, one of the little towns shopping. The husbands went into a store, shop, or whatever, and the wives sat down on the bench out front. And on the bench right across from them is a, is a man. He engages these two women in conversation. And he begins to talk about eternity, and he begins to talk about their souls, and he begins to talk about Christ. Gives them the gospel, continues on for a while, and finally gets up. The ladies start crying, and he gets up and leaves. The husbands come out of the shop, wherever, the haberdashery shop or the cigar shop or whatever it was. And they see their wives crying, and they say, why are you crying? And they said, this man was just talking with us about Christ and about God and about eternity and about our souls. And one of the husbands said, why don't you tell the man to mind his own business? And one of the ladies said, he's acting like it was his business. We need to have that attitude about us, that it is our business. We're representing the Lord of glory. Another argument against is, you know, one religion is as good as another. Don't try to take people away from their cultural religion, whatever that might be. I know I have infuriated people. I'm, well, I'm, a, I'm very good at doing that. But I tell them, I say, I, they say, you need to have respect for other religions. I said, I have no respect for other religions. Because I believe, if I believe the Scriptures, but I believe that every other religion except saving biblical Christianity is a satanic counterfeit. manufactured by the prince of darkness himself to blind the minds of men and women, boys and girls, lest the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And you want me to respect a falsehood? How can I respect a lie? Respect people. One religion is good as another. And where did you get that information? Wikipedia or whatever you call it. <laughs> Brethren, these arguments really are inarguable for two reasons. First of all, contrary to what the social gospel people think today and the whole socialistic mindset of the world, the world isn't getting better. We are more technologically savvy. We were just talking as we were coming to the evening worship. Perhaps, and Brother David can correct us on this, I think Lewis and Clark probably came right up through here. It took them three years in the Lewis-Clark expedition to map out the western part of the United States. Man, we can get on a plane and we can fly there in four hours. And I can talk to someone at the end of the Columbian River, Columbia River in about 15 seconds. But we are not getting better. The crime rate is not going down. Righteousness is not filling the earth as we understand it. But this art, these arguments are inarguable for one main reason of the one who issued this commission. He didn't say, you know, if the people are receptive, go and make disciples of them. If they're open to, to you, then you, you've got an inroad. There are no conditions here. He's leaving his marching orders. He's saying to these apostles, rise up, men. You're going into a world that is not begging you to come to them. They don't want you. They have no desire for you. But you go to them. 
I am commanding you, you going in my authority. That is the mindset that we must have. The fourth thing, and this might get a little controversial, but that's okay. The fourth thing, the productivity that is imperative in this commission. Notice what he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I believe I'm a good Calvinist. I think if you cut my blood or cut my arm, I'm going to bleed 1689. Someone asked me if I was a five-point Calvinist, and I said, no, I'm a 32-point Calvinist. (laughs) And this Southern Baptist pastor said, I've never heard of one of those before. I said, I tell you, I'd love to introduce you to a bunch of them. He said, what are the 32 points? I said, chapters 1 through 32 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And we Calvinists want to read this. Notice the wording. The Lord Jesus didn't say, as you will go, as you go, as you're going, I will make disciples. He didn't say that, did he? Matter of fact, the word that's used here, from the word mathetes, a disciple, a disciple, Leon Morris thinks that it should be learner. Either way, is the only imperative found in this entire account of the Great Commission. He says, go, as you're going, you make disciples. This is imperative active. You make disciples. Whoa, wait a minute. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't save anybody. Well, that's good that you know that. Well, what is the Lord saying? It kind of reminds me of the account in Mark chapter 6 of the feeding of the 5,000. Mark gives an interesting observation here. Christ is in the desert place. 5,000 come. I believe there were probably more. Days late, disciples come. Andrew, one account, said, said, Lord, said, there, there are people here and they're hungry. Send them away into the towns and villages that they may buy them something to eat. What did the Lord Jesus say? He said, you give them something to eat. I like to look at this. When I preached through Mark, I had a very... Very complex outline about this sermon. Three things. A hopelessly impossible situation. He says to these twelve, you give them something. And they said, we only have 200 denarii. (laughs) That won't do anything. He didn't take that back. Hopelessly impossible situation. Hopelessly impossible task. But then the Lord of the hopelessly impossible began to speak. What do you have? Some fishes, loaves. The Lord of the hopelessly impossible took over. He says here to these eleven, you make disciples. Not, as you go, I'm going to make disciples. That rubs against my Calvinism, just to be honest with you. And probably, if you're honest, it rubs against some of yours as well, deep down inside. Now, I'd have you to notice, this is not in conflict with the eternal decrees of God and God's sovereignty and election and predestination and salvation. And this is not in conflict with the fallen depravity of man, nor the bondage of his will. And this is not in conflict with the drawing and effectual working of the Spirit of God and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. In drawing me into Christ. This is not in conflict. But what it is doing is heightening our responsibility. He is not saying, you wait for the Holy Spirit to draw. I believe that no one can come unless the Father which sent Him draws me in. Right? And I don't believe it in the Wesleyan, Arminian sense of prevenient grace. Men cannot come unless they're drawn. 
But that's not my responsibility. That is not your responsibility. Our responsibility is to make disciples. I like what Michael Green says in this matter. He says the apostles are called not to evoke decisions, but to make disciples. And that is an altogether tougher assignment. So we see the productivity. You make disciples. The fifth thing that I want us to see here are the peoples that are impoverished. So therefore, make disciples of all the nations, literally the ethne, all the people groups. I can tell you from my own personal experience, I, I, I detest the religion of Islam. I've not had the experience of some, but I've dealt with many Muslims. And the more I understand that religion, the more detestable it is. And I remember talking with this Muslim one time, and he said, I wish you could see the inside of my heart. He said, it is black with hatred for Jews and anyone else that supports them. I mean, venom was coming out. He said, if you slap me, I will hit you with my fist. If you cut me with a knife, I will cut you with my sword. You shoot me with a pistol, I will shoot you with an automatic rifle. Almost verbatim what he said to me. And I tried to speak with him and I wanted and I walked away and I was almost tempted, oh let him go to hell then. But God will take care of that. But what we have here is the ethne, the peoples of this world. God sees the nations as sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Are they enemies of Christ? Yes. Even some of those same Jews that were in Paul's day, those were the enemies of Christ. But I need not remind you that once you and I, once you and I were enemies of Christ, I, I didn't want anything to do with Him. I spurned His grace. I hated His law. I hated His gospel. I wanted nothing to do with Him. Thank God he said, well, I'll have nothing to do with you then, oh boy. God sees the nations as sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. He sees them in poverty without power or strength to help themselves. Go, he says, and make disciples literally of all the peoples. Doesn't matter what ethnic, cultural, linguistic Background that they are, make disciples of them. We often think that Christianity is the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, the wasp. But I rejoice, as we're told in Revelation, that people from every kindred, nation, tribe, and tongue shall be singing, Worthy is the Lamb who has redeemed us with His blood. And let's not be content with the slight victories that we have seen thus far. Sixthly, the pattern that is indispensable. There's a pattern here. We go, and it's threefold, very simple. Conversion. Make disciples. Now, it's kind of backward from the way that much of evangelicalism thinks today, isn't it? Evangelicalism today wants to make decisions and then we go on down the road and start discipling them. We'll have a decision, we'll baptize, and then we start discipling them. We have these discipleship groups. Brethren, discipleship comes with conversion. And we had some conversions in the past two years at, at my church, and, and we waited before we baptized them. They said, well, I said, I want to see if they're a true disciple. You can't disciple the dead. Right? There's got to be some life in there. 
This is the first point in this pattern that we can't bypass. We can't go around it. It's indispensable in our thinking. First of all, there are conversions. Then there's submersion. I am a Baptist. I love Brother Fred's book, The Baptism of Disciples. I, I thought, I'd like to send it the submersion of disciples. Hold them under there for at least 20, 30 seconds. Not really, I don't. You do not baptize someone who is not a disciple. But then notice the third aspect of this pattern. And brethren, this is so rich, but we baptize them in the name, not names. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. This whole Trinitarian concept, brethren. We are Trinitarian, Nicene Christians, are we not? And there are those of us that say, and the missiologists are saying today, you know, especially in some places where you go, you go... You can't talk too much about the Trinity. It's so hard to understand. I said, yes, it is. And if you could understand it, it wouldn't be true fully. We can't back away from these things. In the name of the Father and the Son. I like the way the old King James uses it. I like to use it just to make a little peop- some people sometimes a little nervous. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen? It gets their attention at least, doesn't it? Instruction. Conversion, submersion, instruction. Notice what the Lord of glory said. Make disciples of the nations. Baptize them. We're all, I think, not, it's okay. We're all Baptists here. Don't need to deal with that. But notice in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Teaching not many things, not most things, not more things than what He commanded, or less things than what He commanded, but all things that He commanded. And brethren, I don't care how you slice it, this of necessity demands the church. Jesus didn't send His apostles out to form ladies' tea fellowships and men's coffee fellowships. Or fishermen's fry clubs and, and all these other things. He sent them and they started churches. And churches had men who were ordained ministers of the Word of God. And there is a difference between a call to the ministry and a call to a secular vocation. You've got to have the ministry. You've got to have the church. You've got to have men called. To primarily begin to teach. There is the means of grace involved with this. And it demands the church. The teaching ministry of the church and the means of grace. The Lord's Day. I still believe. And I haven't been convinced otherwise. I believe our forefathers were right. Chapter 22 of the Confession. Of Christian worship and the Sabbath. And one of the reasons why we have seen such a decline in our country is that we have turned from the law of God and the gospel. And I went to Shreveport. The church is in Shreveport, by the way. I live in Bossier City. Or as the Yankees say, Bossier City or whatever. (laughs) And they have one of those stinking Mardi Gras parades come by our church on Sunday before Fat Tuesday. I've been around and around with the city council. And they're pretty tired of me coming around, I think. But 22 years ago in the state of Louisiana, the blue laws were taken off the whole matter of, of the legislative process. These things need to be taught. The matter of the Lord's Day, worshiping the church and all the, the whole spectrum of truth. This is part of our evangelism. 
the church, well, the church is full of hypocrites. I said, yeah, and the hospital right over there that you just came out of is full of hypocrites as well, but it doesn't keep you from going over there, does it? And that gas station where you buy your gas, a hypocrite owns and runs it too, but that doesn't stop you from getting gas there, does it? Well, I'm way off my notes. I'm <laughs> and then last, last point I want to leave with you, and I'm going to close here very shortly. <laughs> Thank you, brother. There must be the church. There must be the proper use of the means of grace, both public and private. And then lastly, the promise that is indissolvable. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you. I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Doesn't that seem a little contradictory? I'm with you and then all of a sudden, the gravity that he himself created, he now defies. And he begins to ascend up into heaven. And in Acts 1, Luke picks it up and an angel says you men you men of Galilee why are you standing gazing I like what Spurgeon said you men of Plymouth why stand you gazing into heaven you men of Galilee why stand you gazing into heaven uh, can, you, can you kind of process a little of what's going on here he just I, lo I'm with you always and then all of a sudden He's gone. But where is the promise? I am with you, he says. And brethren, his presence is with us. I am with you. I love the word always. There's a permanence. We may not feel like Christ is with us. That hymn we sang before the preaching. Many of you as pastors, elders, maybe you're just, as you call yourself a regular church member, maybe you teach Sunday school, and you think your labors are so little, you've seen very little success. Just remember, brethren, only eternity will reveal what's, what, what will take place. Here's a promise. Lo, I am with you. He himself is with us. I tell our people, how many of you pastors in your churches, how many times do you, Lord be with us, Lord be with us, Lord be with us. Why in the world are we praying that? And he already said he's with us. And he already said in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that you may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. And it seems like all we pray is, Lord be with us now, Lord be with us now, as if He wasn't with us. I say, I don't want to hear this general prayer, Lord be with us. Let's pray something specific. Lord, own Your Word in the worship today. Lord, make it effectual today. Lord, make our labors as meager and small as they may be. Make them useful for Your glory. Lord be with us. Lord be with us. His promise is, I am with you. The permanence of it is always. Now, I've got to close with just three very quick implications. Today we fight battles on many fronts. There is the disintegration of theology and the gospel message itself. There is the breakdown of the nature of a gospel church. There's a misunderstanding of what it is to be a gospel minister. The ignorance of the means of grace, both public and private. The raping of biblical evangelism by false method and faulty methods takes place all the time. We're fighting a war against the adversary. We're fighting a war to rescue the souls of men. And then we're fighting on another front of a defunct, dysfunctional church, so-called, that is undermining everything that we're seeking to build up. And brethren, sometimes it can be discouraging, can't it? 
because we so prize the church and the appointed means of grace, we become cautious lest we are ensnared by semi-Pelagian, Arminian evangelistic method and zeal. Some of us retreat into holy enclaves, seeking to refine our purity and hope and pray that the Lord will sovereignly bring someone unsaved into our church building this Sunday to hear the Word of God. And we have made no attempt to say to someone this week, and I love this verse, I love what Moses said to his father-in-law Jethro in Numbers 10. He's going back to Midian and Moses said to him, he said, Jethro, don't go back. He said, come with us and we will do you good. And that inner city place where I'm at now, racially mixed, no money people, I'm having the time of my life. I'm saying to all sorts of people of color, to use that expression, I want you to come over here to Heritage Baptist Church. I'm the new pastor. And I've had different racial groups say, you want me to come? I said, I want you to come. I don't care if you're purple or green. I want you to come. I want this church building that will seat 450 people. I want it filled with old, raw pagans. I don't care what color they are. I don't care how much money they have. If they're outside of Christ, I want them under the Word of God. I want them to come with us. We will do them good. Amen? Brethren, as a result of this Great Commission, three things by implication. First of all, ministers and members must engage the world of unbelievers. We cannot cloister ourselves. We cannot get in our holy huddles. We cannot have our sacred enclaves. It's time, as we sing that hymn, Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give mind and soul and heart and strength to serve the King of kings. And not only the ministers and the pastors, but the members. And we must engage the world of unbelievers. Not just the world in Asia or Africa, but the world next door to you. The world in your neighborhood. The world in your workplace. The world in your town center. And I tell the university students in our church, and it's not going to help them get a good grade. LSU, right over there, I say. Don't you let those university professors with their damnable presuppositions weasel into your mind. You challenge those ungodly presuppositions. One guy said, Pastor, I won't get a good grade. I said, Are you interested in the grade only? It's time for university students in the classes to say, Sir or ma'am, have you considered what you said in light of the Word of God? I don't believe the Word of God. And what is the response to that? It doesn't matter if you believe the Word of God or not. It's still true, right? We've got to learn to engage the world of unbelievers. Humbly, graciously challenge these damnable presuppositions that the world throws out to us. Second implication. Ministers and members must employ God's means. I still believe in the centrality of preaching in the worship of God, And I also believe that when we go out of the house of God on the Lord's Day, preaching out there too. Use these means of grace. I remember this man said to me, he said, Pastor, I I don't know what to say to some. I said, do you know how to say, I'd like to invite you to our church next Sunday? And he said, yes. I said, that's one of the simplest and easiest ways of evangelism. And I believe, brethren, that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God, is it not? Come. I want you. I'm going to get ribbed for this. But the woman at the well believed in evangelism. You know that? 
She said, you come. I want you to hear a man that told me everything about me. And that's what we need to see our people do. Tell others of, train our people to tell others of this Christ. And then lastly, the third implication is ministers and members must exercise the free offer of the gospel. I love John Bunyan's description of evangelist in his Pilgrim's Progress. I read it ever so often just to remind me of some things. Christian, when he goes into the house of interpreters, was shown a picture of evangelist. Christian saw in this picture a man who had his eyes to heaven. The best of books was in his hand. The law of truth was written upon his lips. And he stood as if he pleaded with men. I wonder, my brothers and sisters, have we lost the holy art of pleading with men? Most of us would hold without equivocation the free offer of the gospel. Do we not? But you know what I think? I think most of us are scared to death to implement it. Most of us, after recovering from fainting, would not know what to do if someone were to genuinely ask us, what must I do to be saved? If you saw some raw pagan and he were to, or she were to say genuinely and earnestly, I've been struggling in my soul. What must I do to be saved? Not only must we tell them to turn and repent of their sins, but I believe this, brethren, that we need to tell them to choose Christ above all others and above all other earthly things. And I believe we need to tell them to choose Christ now. Mark 1.15 Jesus came preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Present, active, indicative. Repent now and believe the gospel now. Professor Donald McLeod has keenly observed this. Quote, By and far away the most difficult question is, What must I do to be saved? What do we say to those who ask the question? We must call upon men and women. And I didn't like this word, and I still don't know if I like this word, but I think he's right. He said, we must call upon men and women to decide for Christ. Now, I know Billy Graham, the hour of decision. But have not men and women been deciding for the world every day of their lives? I call upon you now to choose not the things of this world, not the sins that only give you temporal happiness, but to choose Christ who is the everlasting treasure and joy. I'm continuing. He says, we must call, quote, upon men and women to decide for Christ. We must not merely tell them to go home and think about the gospel. They must be challenged to respond in faith. Faith is volitional in character. We must tell men to embrace Christ as prophet, as priest, and king. And as preachers, we need to work hard to attain a theological vocabulary that is both accurate and contemporary. End quote. Banner of Truth, magazine, issue 28, page number 20. I think he's right, brethren. I think he's right. Christ has secured the salvation of all of His people. Not a one of them shall be lost. Who they are, known only to the mind of God. But I know where they are. They're out there somewhere. And like the good shepherd who left the 99 in the wilderness, rather we need to know what it is to go into the wilderness looking for those lost sheep for whom Christ died. And we need to make disciples of them. I wish Jesus had said, as you go, I will make disciples. But instead, he said, you go. You make the disciples. Oh, Lord, that's impossible. Yes, it is. But he's the Lord of the hopelessly impossible. Are we taking Christ's last words, this great commission, seriously? 
Or is it just a theological exercise that we go through every now and then? And let me ask you, as I have asked myself, as a pastor, I ask you as pastors, how many disciples as a confessional, covenantal, Reformed Baptist pastor, how many disciples have you made since our last General Assembly? How many disciples have you made? Are we training our people to be salt and light and as they go about their vocations to follow in the footsteps of the Apostles and make disciples of all peoples. May God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, work effectually in our hearts to make the reality of this commission very real to us even this hour. Let's pray.